0: The Occupation of the camel Laird Shipyard in Birkenhead, 1984, by John Cunningham. Summary at the start by... Lowell Tuffy, Secretary of the Camel-Lad Occupation Committee, 10th of June 2021. Quotes, This pamphlet is dedicated to all those who chose to fight back in defence of workers' rights, and against the insanity of a system that treats working-class people with contempt, jailing those who chose to challenge the bosses' right to throw people on the dole. It is also dedicated to those who supported us, from wives, partners and kids, to the local unemployed centres who played such a role, a key role, in organising that support. I hope that this shows that it took a lot of courage and soul-searching for those who decided to join the fight, take the risk in trying to save not just our jobs, but the jobs of future generations." End Page 5. Introduction In 1984, workers at the camel shipyard in Birkenhead occupied their workplace in defence of jobs. They started with a strike in June 1984. The strike and the occupation after it lasted just over three months. The occupation was brought to an end on 3rd of October when the occupiers were arrested. 37 of them were then put on trial, found guilty of contempt of court and sent to prison. Before the action occurred at the same time as the miners' strike of 1984-85, that epic struggle which dominated the news headlines for over a year, it is perhaps easy to overlook it. Workers Liberty has published this pamphlet so that we can remember. There are lessons to be learnt from what happens. The Camelads thirty seven have been fighting for years for the convictions against them to be dropped, though sadly some of the men have since died. As the Labour and Trade Union movement struggles to define itself in the wake of the disastrous 2019 election, with the Trade Union movement in retreat, with the Labour Party headed by an ever-rightwards-retreating Keir Starmer, with sleaze, lies and corruption rampant within the body of political life, it is time to pay heed to that historic exponent of factory occupations. Page 6 the Italian Marxist Antonio Gramsci, whose ringing words are true for us today as they were back in 1919, quotes, It is necessary with bold spirit and good conscience to save, the, to save civilization. We must halt the dissolution which corrodes and corrupts the roots of human society. The barren, barren tree can be made green again. Are we not ready? End quotes. This pamphlet aims to be a tribute, a memory, an inspiration, and a guide to action for future generations who can, and surely will, learn from this landmark in working-class history. From behind prison bars, Lowell Duffy, the Secretary of the Laird's Occupation Committee, who was a supportive socialist organiser, the Forerunner of Workers' Liberty, wrote, We are fighting for jobs, not just for ourselves, but for the whole working-class community here. If Laird clothes, there's nowhere else to go but the dole. We're proud of what we have done, end quotes from Socialist Organiser 211 October 1984. And in answer to Gramsci's question, are we not ready, there has to be only one response, a resounding yes. <laughs> Page 7. Shipbuilding in decline. The background to the occupation. Few people know about the faraway Battle of Tsushima Straits in May 1905 between the Imperial Navies of Japan and Russia. The Japanese blew the Russian ships out of the water, ensuring a resounding victory for this emergent East Asian power and a humiliating defeat for Tsarist Russia, which played its part in the events leading up to the first Russian Revolution of that year. What is really acknowledged is that much of the Japanese fleet, modern, fast and with overwhelming firepower, was made in British shipyards. All six of the Japanese battleships including Vice Admiral Togo Hechichiro's flagship, the powerful Mikasa and half the armoured cruisers. It was a golden era of British shipbuilding which had long been a key element in British colonial and imperial expansion. The industry dominated the seas, with only Germany and the USA as competitors. In 1900, productivity in British shipyards was twice that of the USA and three times that of Germany. After World War I, it was a very different story. British yards were slow to adopt some key technical innovations, page 8, e.g. the move from riveting to welding, and in some And in many countries, indigenous shipbuilding, boosted by the war, continued to expand. Peacetime treaties on limiting naval power also affected the industry. With the onset of the Great Depression in 1929, shipbuilding communities suffered badly. In 1933, 60% of all workers involved in shipbuilding and repair were unemployed. In Scotland, the figure was 77%. In those places which relied heavily on shipbuilding, the effects was devastating. In the northeast town of Jero, it precipitated the famous Jero Crusade in October 1936. World War II and then the Korean War saw a temporary revival of the industry, but the overall trend was downward. In 1956, Japan overtook Britain in terms of production. Now only 23.1% of the world's shipping was built in Britain. In 1957, the huge yards of Harland and Wolfe, Vickers, John Brown, Armstrong, Camel Laird and elsewhere still employed 294,000 workers. That impressive figure hides a disquieting reality. By the 60s, the decline of the industry, particularly relative to its international competitors – was a growing cause for alarm. This was reflected in a flurry of government reports examining the future of shipbuilding building in the UK, the Petten Report of 1962, the Gates Report of 1966, and the Booz Allen Report of 1972, all of which recommended various reforms, some of which were incorporated into future Labour government legislation. On the 30th of April 1975, The Aircraft and Shipbuilding Industries Bill was introduced in Parliament by the then up-and-coming Labour politician Tony Benn, Secretary of State for Industry. A nationalised company was formed, British Shipbuilders. It adopted the name of the previous owners' association and the name also used by the private owners after nationalisation was scrapped. The law received royal assent only in march 1977 due to prolonged resistance by the conservatives and the owners who wanted more compensation some of them in a display of perversity rarer among even their own class appealed to the european Courts of human rights one of those opposed to the act was alfred robins at the time the chairman of vickers and also former chairman of the national coal board ncp His reign at (coughs) Hobart House in TBHQ had seen the closure of whole sections of the mining industry. The law provided for the nationalisation of most of the industry. The problems remained. In 1983, under the Tory government of Margaret Thatcher, the yards reverted to private ownership after the passing of the British Shipbuilders Act. This required British shipbuilders to privatise its assets. In 1989, the old nationalised British shipbuilders ceased shipbuilding operations entirely. The saga of contraction and closure continued. The Blackpool agreements between the Confed, Confederation of Shipbuilding and Engineering Unions, and British shipbuilders, the owners' organisation which did not include Harland and Wolf of Belfast, on 24th of March 1980, agreed to reduce capacity in the industry to just over 400,000 tonnes a year. Page 9. During the 1950s, profits had averaged £120 million a year, but a mere £4 million had been reinvested while shareholders trousered huge dividends. Capital investment in the industry was half of the national average for manufacturing as a whole. This chronic underinvestment and in growing international competition particularly from Japan and South Korea meant the industry faced increasing problems by the early 1960 shipyards had started to close with the first major closure at William Gray of West Hartlepool in 1962 by 1982 british built ships accounted for just 2.6% of the world's output the total workforce in 1984 amounted to 48,000. It continued to fall. By 1990, only 6,000 were employed. Today, the Japanese shipbuilding industry, despite having undergone some recent contraction, outstrips the industries of Britain, Germany, and the USA combined. Organization of workers in the shipbuilding industry. Shipbuilding, by its very nature, is a complex business. Every ship, or oil-gas rig, is unique and there are no production lines, as in, for example, a car industry. The main unions involved were the GMB, General Municipal Boilmakers, which tended to represent the unskilled and semi-skilled workers. The AUEW Amalgamated Union of Engineering Workers in 2007, it became part of UNITE, covering those who did the outfitting work. The EETPU, Electrical, Air, Electronic, Telecom and Plumbing Union, now part of Unite, covering electrical work. UCAT, Union of Construction and Allied Trades and Technicians, now also part of Unite, covering the many wood fittings, carbon interiors, etc. All unions involved in shipbuilding were part of the C. SEU, Confederation of Shipbuilding and Engineering Unions, usually abbreviated to CONFED. Employment in the industry had historically been precarious. When a ship was finished, workers could be laid off with 24 hours notice or even less, and there might be no work until the next order was placed, so workers tended to guard their jobs, demarcating their boundaries and limits. This occasionally led to friction between different unions and groups of workers where particular tasks might appear to overlap. In the 50s and 60s, management and the media made a great fuss over these demarcation and who-does-what disputes, ignoring that the situation arose out of the history of the industry and the lack of employment security, and that similar situations could be found in other industries. Although it provided a handy club with which to beat the workers and their unions. The who-does-what question was little more than a media balloon filled with managerial hot air, utterly peripheral to the many problems faced by the industry. Page 11. The Situation at Camel Laird Camel Laird was not immune to the processes just described, and the yard established in 1824 prospered and declined in line with the general cyclical trends within the industry nationally and worldwide. For years it was one of the most important shipyards in Britain, building the Mauritania for Cunard, two Ark Royals, HMS Devonshire, and the RMS. Windsor Castle, and hundreds of other ships, ferries, and later, oil and gas rigs. At its heights, it employed 12,000 workers. Like other yards around the country, Camel Laird was badly hit by the Depression. Production was boosted by the demands of wartime production between 1939 and 1945, but that provided only a temporary reprieve. By the 50s, it was clear the yard was struggling, as were all the other yards in the UK. After 1983, British Shipbuilders Act, scrapping the Labour government's nationalisation, there was a slow but continuous decline in employment. Camel Laird was denationalised in 1985. In 1977, Camel Laird employed 5,500 by October 1983, this figure had fallen to 3300 Around the same time, management declared 640 jobs were surplus and offered voluntary redundancy, which was accepted by 280. Campbell reported losses of £23.8 million in 1983. A report in 1984 pointed out that the yard was short of work Page 12. Without orders from the Navy, Camel Laird was, would be in serious trouble. Below are some extracts from the Camel Laird's Confederation Shop Stewards Bulletin No. 3, issued in April 1983, which explains the situation facing the workers in the yard in stark detail. The Last Shift Thursday, 14th of April, could be an historic day in the lifetime of Camel Laird. If Robert Atkinson, chairman of B.S. British Shipbuilders and the Tory government get their way, it could be the day the last ship is ever built or launched in this yard. Everyone will have heard about the proposals by B.S. to make 9,000 workers redundant throughout the industry and 1,400 of these are supposed to come from Laird's. Although the Blackpool agreement is officially still in existence, there is no guarantee that if there are not enough volunteers, it will stop there. Robert Atkinson retires in June and seems determined to destroy this number of jobs either by volunteers or by enforced redundancy, which in simple terms means no one's job is safe. Stewards It was decided at the stewards' meeting on 6th of the 4th, 1983, to enlist the support of the local MPs, district and county councillors. We are also aware that the Mersey and District Emergency Committee of the Confed will be meeting the company early this week to discuss this most serious situation. We are under no illusion that MPs, etc. can stop these redundancies. Stopping redundancies is entirely up to the action of all workers throughout our industry. Nevertheless, we believe MPs can put pressure on the government to alter course in our favour. SNC, Shipbuilding National Committee. The SNC will be making a full statement on the April 13th, after which there will be a. a a lay delegates' conference in late April or early May, and after that there will be a full report back to the yards. Alternatives The stewards know there is an alternative to redundancy. We have called on the National Combined Committee to work out a programme of alternative production for the yards. No doubt you have some idea of what can be built in this yard, with a wide range of skills available apart from marine-related products. We hope you will pass on your suggestions to us. An alternative does exist if we are prepared to fight for it. It's no use running to the personal depart- personnel department to sell your job for a few pieces of silver. While we have a job, we must do everything in our power to retain it, not just for ourselves, but for future generations. Page 13. Later bulletins listed a range of alternative production, around which... The yard and its skills could be preserved and revived. Short-term scrap and build, this program would utilise material from scrap ships in production of new ships, reducing costs. Factories, skills already exist within layers to build and maintain factory units. The overheads already exist and would not be increased. Council work. Both Liverpool and Moseyside County Council are labour-controlled and should be sympathetic to saving council and nationalised industry jobs. Plant maintenance. This is already carried out by some other yards, e.g. Smith's Dock Shell. Long term. Undersea exploration. Floating hotels accommodation. Pollution monitoring. Wave power. Decompression chambers, heat pumps, cement kilns, recycling equipment, sugar beet crushers, energy production, oil production platforms, industrial pipelines, industrial boilers. End quotes. By 1984, the whole of the Merseyside and Wirral area was suffered badly from Thatcherite free market e- economics. Factory closures, reduced benefits, and general economic downturn meant that unemployment and poverty in the region soared. An unemployment rate of 22% was cited, but the real figure was almost certainly higher. In the May 1983 council elections, the Labour Party, which locally was heavily influenced by the militant tendency, gained 12 seats and took control of the council from the Tory-Liberal coalition that had previously held sway. Its frontman, Derek Hatton, became a well-known figure in the British media. By the time of the industri- industrial action in Birkenhead, there were two potential centres of resistance to the policies of the Tories. Liverpool City Council resisting cuts, and the miners who had just gone on, gone out on a national strike against pit closures in April 1984 and remain, would remain out until early 1985. This volatile background could not but influence the decision made by the workers at Camel Laird to resist the threats of redundancy. Management at C- Camel Laird was making increasing noises about the employment situation in the yard, and the threat of redundancies divided the workforce. Here is how Camel Laird shop steward Lowell Duffy reported these developments in the pages of Socialist Organizer 1984, 21st of June. Quotes. Camel Laird Shipyard in Birkenhead is in the process of having half of its workforce made redundant with little reaction from inside or outside the yard. On April 16th, the yard mass meeting voted down a resolution from the full time officials and stewards calling for 1. No enforced redundancies or closures. 2. A high powered delegation to Parliament. 3. A delegates' meeting in support of Cameroled involved in the Labour Party movement and community organizations for a mess lobby of parliament since then the full-time officials have concentrated on trying to motivate support from outside the yard, page fourteen in the yard. those of us willing to oppose the redundancies are in the minority but are organizing our campaign. End quotes. compulsory redundancies were announced on the first of June. The owners threatened to tow away HMS Edinburgh and a gas accommodation rig and finish the work on them in a yard in France. As these two vessels were the only remaining work at the yard, it was imperative that this did not happen. On the 28th of June, the pickets crossed the Rubicon into the yard and the strike turned into an occupation. Page (laughs) 15 The Occupation the workers occupied the yard in two stages. On 28th of June, they took over a gas accommodation rig, and on the 3rd of July, a navy frigate, HMS Edinburgh. Both were nearing completion, and the occupation was preempted, and the occupation preempted any attempts by management to tow them away. The occupation was strengthened by a display of solidarity from tugboat workers and dockers, who gave a pledge not to help move the vessels. An occupation committee was formed, and just over 100 were involved in the action, almost all of them from the GMB. As a result, 2,000 other workers were laid off. The yard was now, in effect, shut down. The occupation faced a number of difficulties, but the local community and trade unionists in Merseyside and elsewhere were generous in their support. Free drinking water was a particular problem, but the occupiers managed. Lookouts were established and speakers went around the country getting the news out and urging support for the occupation. Messages of solidarity poured in from trade union branches around the country, striking miners and Labour Party branches. One of the few voices of dissent, other than the usual suspects such as the media, Tories, the employers and local bigwigs, was the Labour MP for Birkenhead, Frank Fields. The local Labour parties disowned him, and there were calls, not for the first time for his resignation. This was not the first time the Scadfields would raise his voice. Page 16. Unsurprisingly, there were threats of legal action against the occupiers, reflecting the Thatcher government's move for new anti-union laws to use the law in their war against the trade unions. The employers had at their disposal a range of laws, including trespass. They could seek various court orders and target the main or leading figures in a dispute. There was also an increasing eagerness on the part of the government to deploy large numbers of police to disperse and break through picket lines, as seen in the Stockport messenger dispute in Warrington and increasingly in the miners' strike. Since the election of Thatcher, employers had demonstrated an increasing inclination to use the law against strikers or those occupying factories, a prime example again being the use of court injunctions and the threat of sequestration of union funds in the miners' strike. Here is Lowell Duffy, four weeks into the occupation, speaking in Ollerton, Nottinghamshire, to an audience of striking miners from the pages of Socialist Organiser 189, 26th of July Quotes We're into the fourth week of occupation at the yard now. It started over the management trying to take over the two vessels that remain in the yard, a gas rig and a frigate. They're the only work we've got. That's about six months' work left on the gas rig and a few months on the frigate. If they take them out of the yard, it will be shut. There's no doubt about that. We've got the local tugboat men and the dockers to agree not to handle anything to do with the two vessels. At its peak, Camel Laird employed about 30,000 people and had hundreds of apprentices every year. We're now down to about 1,800. Another 400 redundancies went through this week. Most of the people in the yards have just accepted the redundancies apart from those who are sitting in. There's about 100 of us at the moment. We've gone down to no apprentices being taken on this year, and about 40 last year. So they have no plans to train any youth in the area in any of the engineering skills. In fact, Camel Laird's is the last place left in the area that does, not, that does any sort of heavy engineering. British shipbuilders were nationalised in 1977 by the Labour government. Page 17. Since then, the Labour government started this. There has been 30,000 jobs lost. At the beginning of this year, we are going to have a national strike against redundancies. We had a ballot and it was overwhelmingly in favour of a national strike. It was due to start on January the 6th. The reason why the national officials called the ballot in the first place is that they were used to having ballots go the right way for them, which is not to strike. We came back to work after the Christmas holidays on the 3rd. Everybody was buzzing. Everybody wanted to have a go. Then on the Thursday they sent their delegates back to the yards, telling them that they had got a deal, but they shouldn't say anything and shouldn't report back until the official documents arrived at, arrived a week later. So effectively they called a national strike off just by manoeuvres. So the deal went through. You've heard about Scott's Lithgow. You know what they say about the mines, they're unproductive, you you can't get coal out of them. They said the same about Scott Lithgow. They said you can't build sh- ships in a yard like Scott Lithgow. It doesn't have the facilities, the workforce are all lazy. Scott Lithgow was sold off to Trafalgar House. Trafalgar House got a deal when they bought Scott Lithgow that no other yard in British shipbuilders would tender against them for any oil-related work. In other words, Camelad was just wiped out by the signing of that agreement on Scott Lithgow. In British shipbuilders, over the last few years, there have been about four or five closures or sell-offs. One of them was Rob Calladon in Dundee. The Shipbuilding Negotiating Committee called a series of one-day strikes over that. We were on strike every Monday for four weeks. It was great for getting over the weekend, but it had no effect. Eventually the people at Rob Culloden caved in. (coughs) Then you had Henry Rob in Leith. There were some people there willing to fight. They approached the Shipbuilding Negotiating Committee for support in line with its stated policy. The SNC said you don't seem to have much support in the yard. There's only about 15 15 of you willing to fight, so we can't call action. We can't have all these people losing money for just 15 of you. That's the sort of thing that has been going on, the sort of betrayals we've had from the SNC. At Laird's, there were only two major sections ready to fight. The stages and in my, my own department, the plant maintenance department, we're getting massive support from outside Camel Laird, though a lot of people in the yard have accepted the in- inevitability of jobs going. We've decided in the occupation that it doesn't matter what they throw at us, whether they throw us writs at us or send in the coppers or whatever. We're not budging. If they do get a writs, we'll have a mass sit-in and a call on the people of the rest of, of the area to join us. End quote page 18. Workplace occupations. In the arsenal of working class struggle, a factory occupation or sit in, sit down or sometimes work in is a major weapon. In occupying their workplace, workers are not isolated at home or bored or frozen to death on the picket line. The occupied factory can act as a rallying and organising centre and can be a very visible physical signal to the outside world. Just as important as these considerations is the challenge it poses to ruling class notions of property, ownership and production, the very pillars of the capitalist system. In that respect, the spirit of occupation is as important as its physical reality. Occupations have occurred since the time of the Industrial Revolution, but made a greater impact in the 20th century as factory concentration grew and individual production units developed in size. One of the most famous factory occupations was the wave of seizures that gripped Italy in 1919-20. to In Turin alone, almost 100,000 workers occupied their factories after being locked out. American car workers in the great organising drives of the mid-30s occupied their plants in Flint, General Motors, Detroit, Chrysler, Ford and elsewhere. Even the, the mighty Ford Combine once thought invulnerable to unionization succumbed and the UAW United Automobile Workers and the CIO Congress of Industrial Organizations were born. Interestingly, many of the auto workers called their action the Polish tactic. Factory occupations had been effectively employed in Poland and Polish immigrants to the USA carried this memory with them, as indeed did Solidarnosc in nineteen eighties. Paradoxically, US car workers, worker activists used the more advanced tactic of occupation because they thought the less advanced tactic of a regular strike would be too difficult to sustain against scabs and cops. There are countless other examples from around the world. Page 19. In Britain, the history of class struggle has been punctuated by factory occupations, and sometimes, um, Of more heated conflicts, they've been fairly common. In 1971, workers at the Upper Clyde Shipbuilders in Glasgow staged a work in. In 1972, there was a mass occupation of engineering factories in the Manchester area, and the Fisher Bendix plant in Kirby was occupied for five weeks. Between 1970 to 81... There were 264 factory occupations, and of those, only 69 were concerned with closure. As the economic situation deteriorated, occupations tended to become more defensive, and after 1979, rarer. Between 1979 to 85, there were an estimated 100 occupations. After that, the number of declines and confidence fell in the wake of the miners' defeat, Employers felt more confident and increasingly turned to legal action, particularly using trespass laws and targeting trade union leaderships who became more reluctant to endorse possible illegal action and risk the sequestration of their funds. Laird management eventually had a court order issued to remove the occupiers from the yard. They responded by ignoring it. The occupiers stood their ground and a standoff ensued. Management attempted to influence a section of the workforce who were opposed to the occupation to secure a return to work and a back-to-work meeting was held on the 13th of August, but the occupation remained solid. Lowell Duffy took up the story of the occupation and legal threats faced by the occupation occupiers in his report in Socialist Organiser, um, 197, 20th of September. The occup quotes. The occupation of the HMS Edinburgh and the gas accommodation rig is now in its 13th week. On 13th, Thursday, the 13th of September, management went back to Manchester High Court for an enactment order on the original writ to have us removed. It was granted. That morning, a mass picket of the yard showed the solidarity of the labour movement with the workers in the occupation. Among the pickets were shipyard workers, city councillors, unemployed groups, and local MPs. Page 20. Uh, End quotes. Page 20. By 17th of September, after many threats, writs were served on the leaders of the Occupation Committee, basically telling them to leave the premises or face arrest. They continued to ignore those injunctions. The occupiers decided not to physically resist the police when they came to make their arrests. The wider balance of forces had shifted. Liverpool City Council had done a deal with the Tory government in July, in fact only a scheme to postpone issues to 1985, when the Tories would be, would be stronger. The minor strike had started to go onto the back foot and would start receding outright by early November. By 11th of October, Socialist Organizer reported: 37 workers from Camel Laird shipyard had been jailed for a month for fighting for their jobs. 11 were arrested on Monday, the 1st, and another 26 on Wednesday, the 3rd. In total, 37 were now sampling the delights of Walton Jail. Walton has a terrible reputation. In 2017, the conditions in the prison were so bad that the governorship had to face a parliamentary inquiry, and the conditions were surely worse in 1984. However, from behind the gloomy walls of Walton, the occupiers remained defiant and called on the Labour and trade union movement for support. On the 17th of October, 9,000 GMB members in the city council went on 24-hour strike to support the jailed 37. However, the response of the official trade union leadership was disappointing. The point made by Lowell Duffy, now out of Walton, in Socialist Organiser, 2002 on 25th of October. Quotes, It was pretty horrible being in prison, but the attitude of the other prisoners was brilliant. Everywhere we went they shouted out, You're the lads from lads, and we're with you. I think the local and national offic- officers failed abysmally to mobilise any support for us. They have got a national policy of opposing enforced redundancies. They should have argued from day one of our sit-in, never mind day one of the jailing, for other people to come out in support. Page 21. Frankfield, a report of infamy. There are many words that could be used to describe Frankfield MP for Birkenhead, most of them unsuitable for publication like this. What follows is just a short rundown on the Labour MP who denounced workers fighting to keep their workplace open in his own constituency. During the strike in the occupation, Fields never showed any inclination to meet the workers involved. He was in good terms with high-ranking Tories such as Michael Heseltine and once told him that the strikers were just a bunch of hotheads. He once described Margaret Thatcher as a hero and considered himself one of her confidants. He was opposed to many social welfare measures. He wanted to reduce time limits on abortion. He was in favor of selling off council houses, supported Brexit, and argued for tighter immigration controls. Frankfield was first elected as Birkenhead's MP in 1979. He held the position he held until 2019. In the 1987 general election campaign, he denounced Lord Duffy from the campbell or Occupation Committee, who was the Labour Party candidate in neighbouring Wolsey, and urged a vote for the Conservative Party candidate, Linda Chalker. After August 2018, when he resigned the Labour whip, he stood as an independent, having just one month previously lost a confidence vote in his constituency meeting. The tectonic plates of British politics were felt to quake when, in 2019, he formed the Birkenhead Social Justice Party. No, this is not a a sketch from Monty Python's Flying Circus. He actually did this. This mighty political leviathan came out on the 2019th general election with a staggering 7,285 votes. The winning candidate, Labour's Mick whitley polled 24,990 votes and frank field was thankfully history for services rendered to the cause of the ruling class he was made baron fields of birkenhead on 11th of september 2020 good riddance page 23 released from walton jail 11 on 11th of october and the rest on the 23rd of october The former occupiers continued their campaign to prevent their yard's closures and campaigned for their reinstatement. A picket was maintained and the strike committee resumed its meetings on Saturday the 17th of November. The committee, quotes, decided to step up the fight to win back the jobs of the 43 workers. This includes six who weren't jailed, fighting for the right to work. A mass picket, was called for Wednesday the twenty first of november, the date of a high tide enough to launch the gas accommodation rig. The strike committee also contacted the shop stewards committees in all British shipbuilders' yards to ask them to ask that they call mass meetings to allow us to address them and call for support in the form of action in line with national lay delegate conference and union decisions to oppose enforced redundancies with strike action and occupations, from from Socialist Organiser 206, 1st of November 1984. Despite support from wide layers of the labour and trade union movement, activities of scabs supported and encouraged by management, and the reluctance of trade union leadership to throw its weight behind the strike and occupation, meant that the occupation went down to defeat. Those who refused to support the occupation may have seen themselves vindicated as HMS Edinburgh and the gas accommodation rig headed for the high seas, page 24, but there was to be no plan sailing for Camel Laird as the yard lurched from one crisis to another. According to no less an authority than MP for Wolsey, Angela Eagle, Speaking in the House of Commons, 14th of December 1992, the yard was bought by Vickers Shipbuilding and Engineering Limited, VSEL, in 1986 for the princely sum of £1, that is, £1. As VSEL already had a yard in Barrow, this appeared to be little more than an asset stripping exercise. The Yard closed with the loss of 900 jobs in 1993, but then spluttered back into life with various mergers, buyouts and rebrandings, not concerned with re-establishing shipbuilding, but with repair work, small-scale projects and asset stripping. There have been so many changes of ownership and plans put forward, including one to put the Yard into a community trust, that it is difficult to follow the myriad twists and turns. The Guardian, online, 18th of August 2001, reported that "...hundreds of workers at Camel Laird's on Tyneside and Merseyside are almost certain to lose their jobs after the company was sold to a repair and conversion company A&B acquisitions for an undisclosed sum." In the early months of 2006, the company was sold lock, stock and barrel to private investors. They continued to use the name Camel Laird for a time, but it was renamed Gibdock Gib equals Gibraltar, on 7th of December 2009. Although a Camel shipyard, the name was readopted. still exists in Birkenhead, it limps along. The yard that, in 1938, built the Mauritania, the biggest ship ever launched in England at the time, now gets excited about the prospect of building the new Royal Yacht, which isn't a Royal Yacht, but some kind of business ambassador vessel. Even the much-trumpeted polar exploration vessel, the Sir David Attenborough, was not completed without problems. Let's ignore the amusing controversy over whether the vessel should have been named Boaty McBoatface. With a £200 million budget, the final construction incurred thirty seven point four million pounds losses, an impairment charge of fifteen point eight million compensation for loss of goodwill e g name brand recognition or reputation, and was two years behind schedule. It was finally launched on fourteenth of July twenty eighteen with apparently no sense of irony. The Liverpool echo third of March. 2021 reported that Boris Johnson, quotes, has an exciting vision for shipbuilding in this country and is committed to making the UK a shipbuilding power. End quotes. About 45 days before Johnson's exciting vision was announced, Laird's management made 178 workers redundant. Page 25, Postscripts. It is rarer in the kind of situation described that at a certain point the blinds are pulled down and everyone gets back to their normal life, whatever that might mean. Eddie Marnell, a member of the Occupation Committee who became a GMB official, has campaigned for many years for the arrested men to have their sentences revoked and wiped off the record. Obstructions have constantly been thrown up by various authorities and he has frequently been denied access to documents and records. It has been a long and often frustrating fight. After many years, he achieved his first success when, in December 2014, the European Parliamentary Petitions Committee heard him put the case for the 37, and they responded by calling on the government to apologise to them. Readers no doubt will be shocked to learn that no apology was forthcoming. Interviewed by Lisa Worth for the online Nerve magazine, Eddie said, quote, "'I want a pardon for all, for all of us skilled men "'who just fought for our rights, "'men stripped of pensions and redundancy "'just because they stood up for themselves, "'men like Tommy Be- Webb, "'who served on the Atlantic convoys during World War II, "'honest, hard-working men who deserved better, "'and I will go on for as long as I can.'" End quotes. Page 26. Lowell Duffy went on to stand as Labour Party candidate for Wolsey in the 1987 general election, almost beating the sitting MP Tory Linda Chalker, turning her previous majority of 6,708 in 1983 into a mere 279. If it had not been for the intervention of the local press by Frank Field, who urged the people of Wolsey to cast their vote for Chalker, then Lowell might have won. The Labour Party machinery made sure that there was no possibility of a repetition. Duffy was barred by the National Executive Committee, NEC, from standing again. Of course, no action was taken against Fields. The next step by the NEC was to parachute Angela Eagle into Olsey, Despite receiving only a handful of nominations from the constituency, she was chosen as the Wall candidate to fight the, gen- the next election, which came in 1992. The skullduggery involved in shoehorning Eagle into her position clearly went against the wishes of the overwhelming majority of the membership. The occupation and the memories it evokes has never gone away. The premiere of The Truth, a play about the occupation by Mike Howell, opened to great acclaim at the Casa Theatre in Liverpool in September 2018. The Justice for Camel Laird's campaign has an informative video which can be easily accessed online via the GMB website. The Birkenhead's Labour MP Mick Whitley a former trade unionist at Vauxhall's Ellesmere Port Plant, was an active member of the Campbell-led occupation and strike. He is currently campaigning for justice for the 37 and will continue to do so until they get it. A House of Commons early-day motion calling for the convictions to be dropped and and an inquiry into the events surrounding the occupation was tabled on the 19th of April 2021 and signed by 34 MPs. There is probably a need for one final word. There is no denying that ultimately the occupation was defeated. The 43 have never been able to get get their jobs back and pensions have been lost. To pretend otherwise is just wishful thinking. Given the uh, employment situation in the Wirral, it must have been hard to find fresh employment and it would have been very unusual for some kind of blacklist, unofficial otherwise, not to be in operation. Yet can such things be decided on simple black-or-white notion of victory or defeat? There is something called history, and there is something tangible and real, which is class spirit or class consciousness, which a month in Walton jail cannot crush. These are not clichés. They exist because of real social conditions in which men and women live. History is not a closed book. We learn from the past, live it in the present, and use it to build for the future. Karl Marx once famously wrote that, "...people make their own history, but they do not make it as they please." To go on strike and then occupy your place of work at a time when the industry you are part of has been in more or less continual decline and resistance has been at best sporadic was hardly ideal. But the spirit class consciousness, however it is labelled a voiced, did not allow for surrender, page 27 simply lying down and being crushed as we look at it in this way then the idea of defeat or victory becomes less tangible if this is not too mind-bending it was both at the same time in 1988 there was victory for julie hayward a canteen cook at camembert who took a claim for wage discrimination to the appeal court and in a landmark ruling won her case Camel-lad workers were on strike again in November 2018, essentially fighting the same battle against job cuts as before and with limited success. History has not closed its book. Read the end of the pamphlets for the names of the 37 who were arrested and imprisoned, and also for the acknowledgement sources and references.